Hi, this is Chris Kotnor, executive producer of the DSR Network's family of podcasts. I wanted to tell you about an exciting opportunity we have for a podcast producer. Our ideal applicant will have a deep interest and background in international and domestic issues, podcast production experience, and our desire to help grow the podcast. The person will also take the lead on promoting programming on social media and potentially could co-host podcasts, must be comfortable working with very high-level guests worldwide, including current government officials, strong academic background in political science, international affairs, or public policy required, excellent writing skills, a familiarity with WordPress, the Riverside podcasting platform, and a willingness to do whatever it takes is essential. If you're interested in learning more about this opportunity, please email us at info at the dsrnetwork.com. That's info at the dsrnetwork.com. Thank you. We're excited to share that the following offer has been extended through the end of the week. We hope you become a member today. Tuesday, February 28th marks one year since we launched the DSR Daily Brief. We're showing our thanks by providing you with our best sale price ever on membership. From now through March 4th, visit the dsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DAILYBRIEF to receive 50% off our regular membership price of $50 per year or $5 per month. Members receive access to bonus content, an ad-free listening experience, exclusive blog posts, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. This is a one-time only offer, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DAILYBRIEF to receive 50% off. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. I'm David Roscoff coming to you from New York City. Coming to you, um, as they do every week, we have, um, well, not exactly in Washington, D.C. We have Corey Shockey out in the middle of Virginia someplace. Uh, how are you doing, Corey? I am exceedingly well. Thank you, David. Um, and uh, Corey, of course, is of, from the American Enterprise Institute and from Georgetown University Law School. We have Rosa Brooks, who's probably in Alexandria, Virginia. I am. I'm back in Alexandria with my duck rabbit. With your duck rabbit in the background. And we are uh, very, very pleased to be joined today by um, uh, uh, one of Israel's most distinguished diplomats, a former consul general in New York and advisor to multiple uh, Prime Ministers and Foreign Ministers of Israel, Alon Pincus. How are you today, Alon? You are in Tel Aviv. Yes, yes, I am. But it's calm and quiet. I just, I just came from the local Seven Eleven, so <laughs> it, it, it's, 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 it's all fine. I mean, it, it, 
It doesn't seem fine if you look at the television sets, and it probably may get nasty in a few moments, but as of now, it's fine. Maybe we can broaden the lens um, somewhat from the seven, the local 7-Eleven. How do you uh, see the situation um, now? Obviously, it's been um, evolving um, and, uh, uh, you know, most of what, uh, you know, we, we have sort of tens of thousands of listeners around the world. Um, and, you know, I, I fear that most of them get a view that's, that's skewed a bit one way or another objectively. And I have enormous respect, by the way, folks for Elon, who is actually one of the most objective and thoughtful analysts of what's going on in Israel uh, that there is. How do you, how do you see the situation at the moment? Uh, You know what? I'm sorry to uh, sound um, not so serious about this, but you all remember and you can all recall the, uh, you know, the National Geographic uh, uh, films or movies where you see a lion uh, who's talking a, a zebra or an antelope. And, and you know what's going to happen and you know the sequence. And it's not even important if this movie is two, four, six or eight years old or if it was filmed today. So take that in the, the analogy and, and, and transport it to the Israeli Hamas uh, current flare-up. It's the same thing we've seen in 2012, 2014, 2018, and currently in 2021. Um, the, the circumstances may be different. We can get into that a little later with um, several provocations that Netanyahu and his government initiated in East Jerusalem that deliberately or by, by default uh, resulted in Hamas doing what they're doing. Uh, but in terms of the Israel-Hamas equation, it's the same sequence. First, Hamas has a political stake in saying something, so they, they uh, put out some bombastic uh, threats. Israel then recruits its best intelligence analysis that turns out to be wrong about how Hamas actually don't mean what they say. They do not have an interest in, in any kind of escalation. In fact, on a cost-effective uh, balance, uh, they shouldn't, and therefore, ergo, they won't. And then they do. And then they fire missiles or rockets, and Israel needs to retaliate. And then the, the volume of the rockets increases, and Israel retaliates disproportionately, or what some would call disproportionately. And that lasts usually for 96 hours, followed by a period of 48 to 72, when everyone is talking about a... Um, a ceasefire, and my understanding is we're talking uh, Monday evening, Israel time, that around this time, President Biden said he would speak to Prime Minister Netanyahu. So I don't know if they had spoken yet or what the content of that discussion was, but I'm lo- we're looking at a ceasefire in the next 48 hours, I would imagine, maybe 72 hours, maybe slightly a, a day more. Obviously, that could change. But here's, here's the thing, David. Um, strategically, nothing happened. It's, it's a status quo ante. It's, it's Groundhog Day. Excuse me for mixing the, uh, uh, the cliches and the affirmations. Um, it, it's, it's the same situation that existed before and after 12, before and after 2014, before and after 2018. And we're going to see basically the same thing. And one last thing that I will add to this intro- too, too long introduction is that Mr. Netanyahu, as long as he's prime minister, appears to have a vested interest in this status quo. 
and, and no incentive whatsoever to change neither the paradigm nor Israeli strategy if one exists. So essentially in 48, 72, 96 hours, uh, we'll be at the same place that we were 10 days ago. So Corey, perhaps you have a question for Alon and then Rosa, and then we can open it up a bit. Yeah, I do, Alon. I find persuasive your description of the cyclical nature of this and the fact that uh, we see the same uh, documentary over and over. How significant are what you described as the provocations by the Netanyahu government? In particular, it it seems to me that although governments haven't um, recalibrated, Israel is at risk of losing public support in America and elsewhere because of those provocations. Tell me how you're thinking about that piece of the equation, please. Um, that's actually the 64,000, uh, well, 64 billion, no one remembers the 64,000 uh, dollar question, Corey. You're absolutely right. Here, here's the thing. Um, there, were, there was a particular and unique set of political circumstances before the provocations in Jerusalem. And that was that Mr. Netanyahu for the fourth successive time uh, did not and well could not and did not eventually form a government. And the, the president empowered or mandated uh, the opposition leader, Mr. Lapid, to form a government. And basically, Mr. Netanyahu had no tricks up his sleeves other than uh, some kind of a security issue. Iran being impossible to uh, flare up. So, that, so provocations in Jerusalem made sense. And we all, we're all familiar with the, uh, the axiom that, that, you know, the, the uh, when, you, when you're confronted in politics, maybe in other fields of life too, when you're confronted with a uh, conspiracy theory or a stupidity theory, first examine and explore the stupidity because 95% of the time, the answer is gonna be with stupidity. This time around, I have to tell you, Corey, uh, there's a good chance that while stupidity was abundant, um, there's also a conspiracy here. Um, I can't prove this, but there are very strong signs suggesting that what happened in Jerusalem was going to uh, almost by definition and by, by sequence lead to what happened in Gaza, given also that the Palestinian election was postponed, one that Hamas was looking forward to participate in. In terms of the provocation, it, it, in, the provocations in, in, in uh, Jerusalem, there are two important things here, and you mentioned one of them, that is public support. But let's, let's narrow it down to, uh, to two very important trends that are sort of emerging out of this, although it's an early stage. The first is the complete um, disintegration. I'm not saying it's, it can't be fixed, but it looks like a complete disintegration of relations between Israeli Jews and Israeli Palestinians, i.e. the 20% of Arabs living within the Green Line. What happened in Jerusalem trickled or spilled over into Israel and you saw riots and, and mobs uh, um, all over the place in, in so-called mixed cities where both Jews and Arabs live, like Ramle, like Lod, like Jaffa, and, and that's built over into to other suburbs and, and cities. So that's, that's one significance of the uh, Jerusalem uh, provocation. The second has to do with something that you three uh, deal with, well, sort of deal with on a daily basis, and that is uh, public support or congressional support, particularly amongst Democrats, 
in the U.S. Apparently what happened in Jerusalem and, and the way it escalated and was extended into Gaza, um, um, you know, it, it, it exposed a cleavage or it exposed a, uh, a, a very fundamental change in tone within the Democratic Party. Now, no one, I'm not saying this is going to dictate policy for uh, President Biden, but, but you can't ignore the signs. This, um, um, starting with Jerusalem, is exactly what Mr. Netanyahu wants. Because who supports him on the issue of Jerusalem? 75 million uh, evangelicals in the U.S. And, and, and an entire Republican Party um, in Congress. So I, I could see what happened in Jerusalem, not just leading to Gaza, which, as I said, is going to end in, I don't know, 48 to 92 to four days. But, but it has far-reaching uh, consequences and, and, and implications on the future, not the immediate time uh, frame on the future of uh, um, Israel's relations with the Democrats who, any way you look at it within your distorted system, they are the majority party, publicly at least, in terms of the population. Rosa? I have two questions. Um, one is any predictions about Netanyahu's political survival? You know, what's what's, do we think he's gonna somehow make it out of this one just as he's managed to squeak through everything else? Um, and my second question relates to what you were just talking about, the, the changing levels of support, particularly within the Democratic Party for uh, military assistance to Israel. Specifically, I see Bernie Sanders said the U.S. needs to take a long, hard look at U.S. military aid to Israel. And, and obviously, uh, if when it comes to other countries in the region, um, say Yemen, we have cut off military assistance as a result of, of credible allegations that uh, Yemen was not taking sufficient care to avoid killing civilians um, in its targeting decisions using U.S. supplied uh, uh, military equipment and, and munitions. Um, do you think, I mean, I, I, there, what, a whole se separate question, I think it's pretty unlikely that the U.S. would in fact cut back on that aid, but hypothetically, if, if the U.S. did credibly threatened to cut that aid um, wholly or in, in, in large part, would that make a difference to Netanyahu's calculations or would it, would it just be a, a way for the U.S. to say, okay, we have clean hands, but not actually change things on the ground? Well, actually, uh, uh, Rosa, um, your second question sort of is dependent or contingent upon the first. Yeah. Will Netanyahu remain the prime minister? And I think that part of the uh, standoffish and, and, and aloof attitude of the Biden administration from the outset stems not only because of his personal antipathy toward Mr. Netanyahu, which is, I think, well established, but also because he was just playing smart and waiting for a new government to be formed. Mm -hmm. Now, Mr. Netanyahu, as I mentioned in a different context a few moments ago, failed to form a government. Um, a, a different government was in the making. It was 90% set. By the way, it was a... a it was a potentially terrible, almost, uh, you know, incongruous, uh, uh, totally incredulous government, uh, you know, Arabs and left wing and right wing. And, and, and but the, uh, the, the, the common denominator, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the energy uh, uh, that prevailed was replacing Netanyahu because he is a threat to democracy. Not because of policy A or policy B or relations with the U.S. Right. This would be like uh, OAC in the U.S. making common cause right. with Cheney to start a coalition right. government. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, yeah, 
put the, uh, uh, the, the Proud Boys and Bernie Sanders and uh, Daughters of the Confederacy and AOC and call it in a third party and, and lo and behold, they're going to win the election. I mean, how stupid and ridiculous does that sound? Well, you know, in Israeli politics, it was possible. Mm-hmm. Then uh, uh, came this flare up in Jerusalem and, and the uh, and, and extension or escalation into Gaza at which point um, one of the leaders of the smaller right-wing parties, Mr. Bennett, with seven seats in parliament, uh, succumbed to the pressure uh, from the right-wingers and said, at this point, I can't be part of an alternative coalition and said, for all intents and purposes, um, an alternative coalition or the so-called the coalition of change or the government of change cannot be formed at this point. That said, there is still um, um, there are still about 16 days in which Mr. Lapid can form a government. Now, arithmetically, he can form a government. He has 61, but for that he needs the support of all 10 Arab members and for two right-wing parties within that coalition to agree to those 10 uh, uh, joining the government actively, i.e., joining the government, not just supporting it from the outside. The likelihood of that, happened is, of that happening is very low. Yet at the same time, Mr. Netanyahu can form a government because constitutionally he's not mandated to form a government. And so this goes back to the Knesset, uh, to Parliament. The Knesset then has 21 days to decide whether it could find someone who has uh, the support of 61 out of 120, so that's the, the minimal uh, majority, um, and, and if not, then it's a new election. During this period of time, Mr. Netanyahu, at least ostensibly and, 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 and uh, publicly saying that he will do everything he can to change the system and turn it into a direct election for the prime minister to break the uh, political impasse, to, to uh, end the stalemate, what have you. It won't, it probably can't pass the Supreme Court because it's changing the, you know, it's changing the, uh, uh, the, the rules uh, during the game, you're moving the goalposts uh, uh, just as you're, you're nearing the end zone. So that's not going to happen. So we're looking most likely, I'm not, I wouldn't bet on this because it, it's all very fluid until this uh, Gaza thing ends. The most likely scenario is a new election, which would take place probably around September. It's usually 90 days from the uh, dissolution of the of parliament. So legally or constitutionally, Let's say that uh, Mr. Lapid hands back the mandate in 16 days, plus the 21 days that the Knesset, you know, uh, 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 plays games and pretends to form a government, but no one can. So that's 37 uh, uh, days. So 37 plus 90, uh, that would lead up. And then you have the, the high holidays, blah, blah. And so before you know it, uh, we're looking at September or October, assuming no law, no electoral law changes occur. So, uh, you know, Mr. Netanyahu may have uh, uh, um, succeeded in living another day, but that doesn't change the trajectory of his political, uh, he's, he's still facing a trial for corruption, well, for, for bribery, breach of trust, and uh, uh, I forgot the third uh, count for, for a moment, um, obstruction of justice. Um, and, and he still doesn't have a majority in parliament and he still can't win an election. I'm not sure that this whole thing is played uh, um, um, to his benefit. 
which leads me to your second question, which deserves the whole 45 minutes. I was just going to say, though, the only good thing about that was a completely depressing answer. The only silver lining of it for an American is that it always right. makes me feel better to know that there are other governments out there that are just as dysfunctional as ours. But oh, no, no, <laughs> aside from no, that, it's totally depressing. No, no, no. We, we don't have a Senate, which is <laughs> That's the most. true. OK, oh, God. All right. So now I'm just completely okay. depressed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're dysfunctional and proud of it, but it's not no, quite as dysfunctional. We're, we're, we're dysfunctional because the the political system is dysfunctional, and politicians yeah. here are dysfunctional. The system is not necessarily dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. In your case, it may be somewhat the other way around. You have some <laughs> good people trying to work in a completely distorted and skewed system, yep. but that's yep. that's a different conversation. Yep. Obviously, okay. Yeah, your second military aid. Yeah, well, okay, military aid is just one dimension. I don't mm -hmm. see that happening. Right. I mean, you know you know who Joe Biden is, you know who the people around him are, you know who the uh, uh, Democratic leadership in the Senate are, I mean, uh, um, in foreign policy. It's Menendez and it's uh, Chuck Schumer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but Israel for many years has, to has totally neglected, I mean, this, this, this idiocy excuse the expression, this myopic, reckless idiocy of putting all your chips with the GOP, which is what Netanyahu did, mm -hmm. and, and substituting American Jews with evangelical Christians, no disrespect, but, but in terms of the... Of the uh, <laughs> it's un not ongoing, a good deal. <laughs> not a good swap. <laughs> um, you know, there's a price to pay for this because you have an entirely new generation uh, not just of members of Congress, not Ilhan Amar and, and, and AOC and uh, uh, Rashida Tlaib, uh, um, but you have, you know, Congressman Polkin and, and Alan Lowenthal and, and, and Jan Schakowsky. That's a different generation. You even have Menendez, whom I mentioned a moment ago, writing a letter that he's unhappy with Israel's actions in Gaza. You have 27 other senators, 28 senators, who signed the letter. You have... I'm not saying it's going to happen, but you do have a, a, a legitimacy uh, um, uh, given to the conversation about conditioning aid. Now, I think conditioning aid is silly and impractical. That's not the point. They're discussing it. It's become legitimate. Ten years ago, 20 years ago, you'd be kicked out of the uh, uh, beltway for even thinking of saying, let's help hold Israel more accountable for the $3.8 billion. Now, I did see today a story in the Washington Post that Israel had asked at the, at, at the, uh, on the 5th of May, significant date because it's just a week before the flare-up, Israel asked an additional $735 million in smart munitions, Boeing manufactured smart munitions. And they're all, all these uh, unnamed members of the House Foreign Affairs Committee who are saying they're unhappy with the lack of transparency. Now, will they vote against it? Probably not. Will even, I mean, the administration is probably going to honor this and everyone, you know, you're going to have the APACs and Israel and, 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 and anyone else saying $735 million. That's a lot of money. That's, that's you know, that's uh, um, employers. That's, that's uh, uh, jobs uh, for Americans working at Boeing. And, and, and this is going to go on. But, but there is a, 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 an undercurrent of displeasure with the way Israel is behaving. It has to do with the, um, uh, how should I say this? What has become a, a, a almost an irrecon irreconcilable uh, um, 
situation between the brochure that tells you about a liberal democratic high-tech Supreme Court uh, uh, pride Israel and, and what you see in reality in terms of the occupation, um, the, the, uh, well, the, the lack of the absence of separation of state and religion. And you have an entire generation of Democrats in America, not just Jews, but 75% of which were 70 to 75, depending on the election of which vote for Democrats, uh, um, but not just, you see that uh, uh, public opinion is shifting away from Israel. It's not becoming pro-Palestinian, but I mean, if in the last two or three, and I'll end with this because I've, I've taken too much time. If in the last two or three days, I saw several mentions throughout the American media, which I consume religiously every day, almost religiously, um, I saw three mentions of the Palestinians or equating the Palestinian struggle with the Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. struggle. I mean, yeah, we could tear this argument uh, apart and we could say that no such analogy exists, but, but I saw the three mentions. Not to mention the fact, which is a point that I disagree in David, the one point that I disagree with David's uh, uh, tweet, uh, uh, Twitter sequence, uh, the apartheid issue. Um, forget you're, you're a law professor, so I'm not going into the legal definitions of apartheid. Um, apartheid has become, you know, the second law, the second Goodwin law. I mean, the first is, uh, you know, the conversation is going to lead to Hitler, and now the, sec the, the, the next conversation is going to inevitably lead to apartheid. The, I, the fact that apartheid, conditioning aid, Black Lives Matter, why is Israel doing this? has crept into the mainstream of American discourse, even if, it's, if it has no practical implications in the immediate future, should uh, uh, serve as a, as a major warning sign to Israel. But Israel is now led by people who, say, who, who are using all this to say, we told you so. We told you the Democrats don't like us. We told you there's that, that the Upper West Side liberal Jews don't get how difficult life is. We told you they, uh, uh, they like the Arabs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, let me, I'd like to sort of follow up on that. And I have a question that I posed to Corey and to Rosa, and, and then we'll come back to you, um, Alon. Um, and I, I, I do want to say, by the way, we're going to cover this issue from a variety of perspectives this week, and we have show later in the week in which we'll hear, you know, some Palestinian perspectives directly from Palestinians. We're going to hear other political perspectives as we go throughout the week. Um, and I also don't want to create the impression that our interest in this exclusively pertains to the U.S.-Israel relationship when the fate of the Palestinians um, uh, uh, is central to, to, to our concerns and, and, uh, and to the successful, ultimately, someday resolution of all of this. Um, but, but sticking with the theme of this conversation, which has to do with the, the U.S.-Israel relationship, um, Corey, you just listened to Alon describe some shifts. And we started out with a description saying this is the same as 2012 and so on. Um, but it doesn't seem to be the same. Something has changed in the United States. Something seems to have changed in U.S. Um, uh, politics. Uh, now, interestingly, the, the the Biden administration has has tried to 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 create the public impression that not much 
has changed. He, 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 he has expressed support um, publicly for the Israeli government. So Secretary Blinken has said, you know, we're right there as we always are. There was a, a slight comment about, um, you know, additional support for the Palestinians. Um, but it's been overwhelmed by this other sort of prevailing view. And of course, there has been this issue of um, selling additional arms to the uh, $735 million in additional arms to the Israelis, which seems um, a bit ill-timed. Uh, Corey and then Rosa, do you think something has changed? Do you think that the, 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 the more prominent views of Democratic spokespeople to offer kind of uh, more support for the Palestinians and more criticism of the Israelis represents a sea change or, or, or has this always been with us? What's your view, Corey? My sense is that there has been a change coming. I remember teaching a Sunday school class to teenagers in the 1990s, um, and they wanted to talk about um, Israel-Palestine. And I was really surprised at how much, as a result of the first and second intifada, um, there was a lot less sympathy among my younger co-religionists for Israel than there is among people my age. So I do think there is a potentially latent generational change going on. And maybe that's some of what we see in younger Democratic members of Congress, um, having more pro-Palestinian views and less sympathy for the framing of the problem as a Hamas versus the security of Israeli Jews. You mean like Bernie, that young whippersnapper? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you should build any kind of system of description around <laughs> Bernie Sanders. Um, the other thing, though, I really do think that Alan's earlier point about Netanyahu politicizing the relationship by the close association and public association with evangelical Christians in the United States and with the Trump administration. Um, one of the things I think is gonna be most interesting to see is whether the public association that the Abraham Accords had uh, established between Israel and the Arab states of the Gulf can withstand the public pressure in those states uh, in opposition to Israel's moves in Palestine. That I'd, I've never been persuaded that the uh, Gulf Arab state governments care very much about the Palestinians, but I do think the publics of those countries do and it affects the relationship between the governance structures in those countries or the governance personalities in the Gulf states and their public. Um, and so they've been remarkably quiet so far. I'd love to hear Alan's um, sense of how he thinks that's gonna play out. Mm -hmm. well. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, and also there's a difference between um, not caring about the Palestinians or just, you know, writing it as, as an issue that, that consumed us for too long and, and, and exacted a high price and we no longer care. Okay, that's one thing. That's almost legitimate or at least understandable. 
But in terms of the Arab street, the Arab population, seeing that their governments are not reaching out to the Palestinians at a time, at a dire time of need, that's, in, that's a different thing. And that's exactly, Corey, where the pressure is going to, uh, uh, to come from. Now, obviously, all this, you know, will be uh, uh, made clearer uh, once this ends and once we know what kind of a government uh, um, is being formed or if we're headed into another election. If we are headed into another election, I think everything will be frozen in, in, in the positive sense uh, with the United Arab Emirates and to a degree with Bahrain and Oman, but, but nothing will expand beyond that. I mean, Israel's only place of interest to expand the so-called Abraham Accord or the so-called uh, uh, new openness to the Gulf was Saudi Arabia. But Saudi Arabia is not exactly the most favorite country in DC these days uh, for a variety of reasons uh, uh, that you're all familiar with, starting with uh, Khashoggi and, and, and ending with the arms sales and, the, well, and what they're doing with it in, in Yemen. So I think everything will, will come to a halt. The question is, the key question is, and I, I, I honestly have no intelligent answer to give you, Corey, is whether or not this is, real, this is really going to end in 24 to 48 hours, which it might in terms of a ceasefire, but, or conversely, um, what will happen if, if this is a change of power? This is a point of inflection that we're not, we're not yet seeing in terms of the Arab uh, population. I mean, what happened in Gaza could spill over into the West Bank. What happens in the West Bank spills over into Israel. What happened within the green line between the two populations is going to uh, reverberate back into Gaza and the West Bank. And to assume that this won't have an effect on the United Arab Emirates or Jordan for that matter, we haven't even mentioned uh, Jordan because you know it's like adding um, a balloon to a uh, party that already has a million balloons. But, but Jordan has 65% Palestinians. Um, uh, this whole thing could go up in fire. I'm, I'm not saying it will. All I'm saying is I don't know what will happen. And if Mr. Netanyahu does get somehow reelected in the election that will be held supposedly or, or conceivably in, in October, September or October, um, he's going to form an extreme right wing uh, coalition. Um, and so I, I don't hold too much hope. I don't see a silver lining. There. But again, there are too many moving parts here to answer what you said. I do agree with one critical point that you made, that after a week of, of violence, hostilities, and, 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 and uh, um, nasty and gory uh, footage on television, the United Arab, Arab Emirates uh, did not recall its ambassador, you know, that, that, that 200-year-old diplomatic uh, stunt that you pull. Uh, but left in here is 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 somewhat surprising. Happily, I'm happy about it, but it's surprising. So, Rose, I want to pick up on the question that I asked to to Corey. You know these Democrats. You know the people who are in state and in the DOD and in the White House. And clearly, something has changed over time. Corey mentions a generational change. There are more voices willing to be critical in in the House. Um, 
and Netanyahu didn't do himself any favors. You know, during the Obama administration, he treated Obama badly. One time when Biden was actually there, um, uh, there were people very close to Obama who wanted to have nothing to do with Bibi again because of this. Subsequent to that, of course, he he uh, jumped whole hog into bed with uh, with uh, um, Trump. I apologize. I apologize to to Corey, that's an image she doesn't need either. <laughs> um, but, but, but uh, I didn't have that image until you said that. <laughs> sorry, sorry. But I but, could have gone a long time without being uh, able by to the see way, that. By the way, this, uh, this, this bromance between those two guys, not, you know, forget the similarities and the, uh, uh, the modus operandi that they share, but the, the, uh, in, in two election campaigns in the last year and a half, Netanyahu used Trump in, in building uh, long and wide posters throughout Israel and on highways, showing himself hugging uh, side by side Donald Trump. So this is this is not just a uh, political science, you know, observation about how close they are. They 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 manifested this. They were proud of this. Yeah, and they maybe again come twenty twenty two and beyond. Uh, but but Rosa, the, the question is, do you think the Biden administration is fundamentally in a different place than the Obama administration? You know, that's a great question. I, I agree with Corey that there is a generational shift taking place. Um, I see it, in fact, in my students uh, all the time, you know, my, my students very much, uh, uh, including the vast majority of my Jewish students are are very ready to use terms like apartheid and compare the Palestinian cause to Black Lives Matter. Um, and that would not have been the case 10 years ago. You know, no question about it. That would have been a, a minority position 10 years ago. So the, 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 the younger you get, the, the more uh, the mainstream has shifted left, I think. And that is replicated in the people I know in the Obama administration. That being said, I think the Biden, that the Biden administration, I'm sorry, excuse me. Yes. Biden administration. Thank you. Um, that, that being said, I think that you don't go into foreign policy, national security, unless you're a realist and the people, including the younger people, despite, I think, a, a different default stance towards Israel, um, you know, a more skeptical stance, more sympathy for the Palestinians, um, I think that's still a group that, you know, they want to they want to advance within within the hierarchies that they're operating in. And the people at the top have not significantly changed their views. It, it, and I say significantly. I mean, I think that there I think there has been some skepticism for some time, but it doesn't, as, as, as Alon suggested, I don't think it extends far enough. I, I don't think it extends as far as we're actually going to yank any money away. I, I think it extends as far as. We will ask pointed questions and express distress and we will feel distress, but we're not going to take away the money. Um, so I don't think it's likely, I agree with a lot. I, I don't think it's likely that we will see any significant change other than a slight rhetorical shift. But I also agree with Alon that I think in 10 years and 20 years, that may be very, very different because the generation that is not yet quite in power that takes a more jaundiced view, uh, uh, will be the generation in power in 10 years or 20 years. Um, 
But by the way, um, Alon made reference earlier to a, a Twitter thread that I did today, uh, trying to present my views on both sides of this. We put that in a column form at the DSR Network website. You can go to it. You can read it. You can see um, where where my views come out. Where you know Alon has mentioned one where he disagrees because I refer to Israel as an apartheid state, um, and I've gradually come to the conclusion that I think that's appropriate. Uh, but, and that's because I'm young, following Corey and what Rosa have said, I, that's because of my youthful outlook. Um, but, you know, I, I do think, Alon, as I, as I listen to Rosa, particularly, this is the first test of the Biden administration on this. And I think there is a, a kind of a desire to stick to the old formulations on this. Right. But I also think, listening to you, that the odds are that this administration is going to be disappointed by what comes next in Israel, whether yeah. it's Netanyahu's you know, next six months, his ninth life or 12th life you know, as, a, as, a, as a prime minister, or 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 a successor administration that comes in and is even more right-wing than him. And that, you know, this administration is going to be in the position, well, look, we cut you some slack. We asked you to do some things. We gave you some more arms and you've now hung us out to dry. The winds are changing and that, you know, you know, a couple of years from now is when we could see the actual consequences of this sea change. Does that seem yeah, reasonable, um, unreasonable to you? No, very reasonable. I think what the, the I think what the Biden administration resents most is that Mr. Netanyahu and the Palestinians, for that matter, uh, superimposed themselves on on his agenda when he was completely disinterested in in this. I mean, you know, there's there's uh, um, <clears throat> the Israelis and Palestinians always remind me of uh, Glenn Close and Fatal Attraction, you know when she has this psychotic uh, um, look in her eyes while cooking uh, Michael Douglas's uh, um, rabbit, daughter's rabbit and saying, I will not be ignored. Um, and, 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 you know, irrespective of, of, of an administration that comes forth with a different set of priorities, which are China, which are um, climate, which have uh, um, a, based on, on, on energy independence, no Soviet Union, disillusionment with the Arab world and fatigue with and hemorrhaging, constant hemorrhaging with entanglements in the Middle East. So they're out. I mean, and by Middle East, I count Iraq and Afghanistan and Lebanon mm -hmm. and Syria. And, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a hundred days into the administration, the Middle East comes like Glenn Close and says, I will not be ignored. But, but, you will not be ignored in the sense that does not benefit America. There is nothing that would benefit Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, than to get involved in this. Um, the problem with Netanyahu is not a policy. It's not a right-wing policy. They can handle that. The problem with Mr. Netanyahu in, in, in the eyes of the administration, I imagine, uh, from what I'm hearing, is, is a major, profound credibility shortage or credibility deficit. They don't believe it. Remember after uh, um, Biden was elected, Netanyahu was one of the last leaders to acknowledge his win and to call him. 
Um, and then Netanyahu boasted that I've known Joe for th over 35 years. And I think it was Martin Indyk who uh, uh, remarked on Twitter, he said, yeah, well, Biden knows you for 35 years too. Um, and that, that perhaps uh, uh, says, says it all. And I, I, you know, I just don't see the administration getting involved in this uh, too much. I think they um, um, are unhappy that they were forced to deal with this. They have other things on their mind. I don't need to tell you three that Biden was elected and sees as his priority to fix America. Uh, good, bad, or neutral, I'm not getting into that, but this is his agenda. Um, getting again into the, the endless uh, cesspool of Israeli-Palestinian, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the so-called peace process is the last thing Mr. Uh, Biden wants to do. And if, if, like you suggested, Dave, if he's looking at, a, um, at another Netanyahu government or a right-wing government or anything that, that's fine. You know, it, 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 it's, it, it's consistent and, and it's compatible with the U.S.'s disengagement or deprioritization of, of the Middle East. They're fine with it. They have one issue to deal with. That's the JCPOA, the, uh, a.k.a. the Iran nuclear deal. Other than that, who cares? Who cares? I mean, you know, I keep on asking me, asking myself, I'm sorry. I keep on asking myself a simple question. If you had 20 minutes alone in the Oval Office tomorrow morning with the president, and he had asked me, hi, I need you for 20 minutes, convince me I'm the president of the United States. I'm not you. I am the president of the United States. Convince me why I should get involved in the Middle East. I can't for the life of me think of any, I'd leave after a minute and say, I'm sorry to waste your time, Mr. President. There's absolutely no reason for you to get involved in this. And so, um, yeah, I think what you're saying basically is right. Look, there, there needs to be um, some accountability for, particularly for the Palestinians, but I speak as an Israeli and as, an, as a Zionist. It's improbable, inconceivable, impossible, excuse the, uh, the, the, all these words, um, that the only thing, the only thing that Israelis and Palestinians agree on is why it's always America's fault. The president was too involved. The president wasn't involved enough. The secretary of state didn't stay away. The secretary of state came here too frequently. Enough. You know, we and the Palestinians need to take some responsibility. You can't call 911 and assume POTUS is going to pick up every time. And the one time that he doesn't, everyone is all, you know, everyone has these, this fear of desertion, uh, uh, desertion. Uh, um, that, uh, oh my God, where is America? America isn't speaking to the Hamas uh, for the last 25 years, so why should they start now? It's, it's up to us. So I totally agree with you. I'm sorry for the long answer. No, no, it's a, it's a good answer, and it underscores one of the points that I tried to make in this column, which is um, both the Israeli people and the Palestinian people are better than the governments they currently have. Yes, they and, are. Uh, 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 you know, it's 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 a big mistake to conflate the publicly visible leadership with, with of these 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 two uh, entities with uh, um, with the the feelings of their people. And I, I I can think of few people who are as thoughtful in their assessments, even if we periodically do not agree, um, uh, than you, Alon. Rosa and Corey, you don't know. Alon is not a noted extremist, except with regard to several sports teams. 
where his views are radical in the extreme. How, 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 how are the New York Giants radical, for God's sake? I mean, okay, the Yankees, okay, fine. I understand right. that people hate the Yankees. But I was a Yankee fan because everyone else was a Mets fan when I grew up. So, so I, I was a contrarian. No, I, I, I went against, I'm like a, a salmon. I, I, I swam against the current. Yeah, well, it's, it's, those are part of it. But, but just even your passing interest in the Arsenal football club, I find. Passing? That's an obsession. I'm trying yeah, to get rid of it for the better part of the last 50-some 50 50 years. Yeah, well, that I find incomprehensible. But in any event, um, I, I thank you for taking the time. Obviously, I thank you, uh, Corey, and I thank you, Rose. I thank everybody for listening. As I said, we've got several more conversations on this subject coming later in this week with people of different perspectives and views. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, go to the DSRnetwork.com uh, to, uh, to see about those. Some you will be able to pose uh, questions. We're also doing one-on-one -on -one with Richard Haas later in the week, both about his book and about this kind of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, we will be talking about it uh, uh, to try to get every, every side uh, in. I think we're off to a good start uh, today with uh, this intervention by Alon. Uh, thanks to all of you. Uh, go to the DCR, DSRnetwork.com to find out more of what we've got. And uh, stay healthy, everybody. Thanks. Bye-bye.